If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Record numbers of UK property companies collapse amid soaring interest rates. Government set to plough a billion pounds into insulating drafty homes before this winter. Tonkin Lu wins planning for a radical transformation of Grosvenor Square. And how public swimming pools are struggling to stay open amid the energy crisis. My name's Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is John Lewis. John is Executive Director for Thamesmead at Peabody and is currently heading up one of the UK's largest regeneration projects. Welcome to the show. Hi. This London is an Open City Stewardship Awards special supported by Peabody. In an age of climate crisis, it is clearer than ever that conventional approaches to urban development at all scales require strategic rethinking. That is why we at Open City created the Stewardship Awards to recognise the value of outstanding maintenance, care and adaptation of existing places. Announced last summer, the inaugural shortlist spans five categories from outstanding estate management to social stewardship, with many of the buildings set to feature in this year's Open House Festival from the 8th to the 21st of September. Finalists include the Dalston Eastern Curve Garden, the Mixed Tenure Russ Community Land Trust in Ladywell, LSE's Aldwych Campus, Argent's King's Cross and the Sanchez Benton designed Peveril Gardens Community Centre next to Bricklayer's Arms on the Old Kent Road. To find out more about the awards and the shortlisted projects, go to our website. Now, on with the show. The number of UK property companies falling into insolvency over the past few months has reached records not seen in more than a decade, as investors still reeling from the pandemic battle their way through soaring interest rates. This is a story of such economic gravity that it ran on the front page of the Financial Times, which reported that a total of 81 property investment companies fell into insolvency in the first three months of this year. Those worst hit by the successive economic disasters of a global pandemic and subsequent soaring inflation and rising interest rates are commercial landlords who saw their income slashed when shops shut during successive lockdowns. The results could be profound, not only for our high streets, but a raft of development sites and mixed-use projects partway through delivery, which risk being stalled as they hang in the balance, leaving abandoned gaps across swathes of our cities and raising questions over the inherent short-termism at the heart of many development models. 
A spokesperson from the tax and advisory firm Mazers said, quote, with so much rent still in arrears and creditors increasingly coming knocking, the recent series of interest rate rises could not have come at a worse time. Unfortunately, further rises are likely to follow, which means the sector is likely to see further insolvencies. Elsewhere in London's property landscape, the West End landlords Shaftesbury and Capco, who have both taken a long-term approach to management of their urban realms, have announced their decision to merge, creating a super company with a combined portfolio value of £5 billion. Dubbed Shaftesbury Capital, it covers a vast swathe of London's West End, including Covent Garden, Carnaby Street, Chinatown and Soho, uh, including several areas which have been the focus of long-term stewardship stretching back centuries. So, John, uh, this article detailing the wave of property company insolvencies is undoubtedly going to create shockwaves through London's design, construction and development industries. What could this also mean for London's built environment and its social, economic and environmental stewardship, particularly with regards to the maintenance and care of existing buildings and sites around the capital? Well, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? You can list out more issues. Uh, It's interesting. I heard... uh, recently in economic forecasts where they're just saying we can't forecast, which is slightly worrying. Um, But, you know, we're seeing things that everyone's worried about. Um, I think from a place point of view, though, what worries me is the smaller organisations that perhaps can weather the storm of no income might just literally shut buildings. And I think that's probably one of our biggest worries, actually, where the issue is that nothing is happening. Um, If someone goes under, sadly, through lots of reasons, but actually someone then replaces them, actually from a sort of place point of view, it might be okay because something will happen, a bit of new investment uh, might come alive again, people get very creative. The worst thing is basically absent landlords who are just saying, well, I'll just wait. And so the boards go up. It looks awful. No one cares. Uh, and that is probably one of the bigger worries, I think. And just so in real terms, this could mean um, shopping centres potentially being shut or just development sites being mothballed for a long time, a big gap in a city town centre. Possibly, although interestingly, a lot of people are forecasting the sort of death of uh, shopping centres, particularly through COVID. Um, and that's not really happened. And in fact, actually, I think there's been a surprising rush back to um, sort of traditional shopping habits um, because people have been so frustrated not having anything to do. I think we're also seeing people who are reinvesting in shopping centres perhaps have seen their days as what I would call the very traditional, you just go shop, go home. Uh, We're seeing so much more mixed-use development coming in, which again, from a town centre point of view, is something that has been, funnily enough, at the focus of a lot of planners and placemakers for years now. So we're seeing the people with the money the investors coming in now to say, actually, we love mixed use, we love creative industries. So actually, it's just changing, I think. The worry is, though, risk uh, is all key for everyone. Therefore, if we haven't got the certainty because of the wider environment everyone's operating in, uh, that is the where sort of investment decisions start to slow down. So that is a worry. So with this fresh wave of insolvencies casting doubt over property companies that use cheap debt to create a quick profit, um, it's also reminding us of the value of that longer-term stewardship approach, uh, which is led by many in the sector, including uh, established landholders, but also some of our most influential housing associations. Um, We mentioned earlier Capco in the introduction. Um, They're one company with a long-term approach, which, for example, uh, in Covent Garden involved investing in high-quality facilities management program. That's actually one of the things that's shortlisted in the stewardship awards in in our uh, landscape management uh, category. In an age of the climate crisis and socioeconomic upheavals, uh, when development companies are under more scrutiny than ever before, what does a genuinely sustainable long-term model look like to you? 
I'm probably a bit biased because I'm going to say uh, exactly what we're doing in terms of media is, is what that model looks like, and that, um, I'm happy to be challenged on that. But I suppose to, to make some sense of that, we've actually adopted a whole town-wide plan. It's a 30-year plan, uh, and it's focused on all aspects of what makes great places. So um, the landscape and open space is massively important. Uh, the idea of involving the community in the design of all we're doing, uh, the sense of bringing in culture on the outset, so bringing in activities, things for people to do, just to build this sort of sense of civic pride. So this sort of sense of people saying, "I, this is where I live, this is where I belong, this is where I'm happy, can come through so many routes that isn't just about saying, well, some of these homes need some reinvestment. What we're also then doing in parallel is investing very heavily in, in new homes because some of the homes in Thamesmead, as an example, some of the concrete constructed uh, leak a lot. Uh, we need to just generally improve where people are living. So we're building new stock because actually we can't really do anything with some of the old stuff. But in doing that, it isn't just about saying, well, we've got a bit of land, put a block of flats up and hope for the best. So we inv invest in the civic squares, we're investing in the lakes to make sure that people are able to really uh, enjoy the amenities around them. And then you've got to plan from the outset that there's enough money to look after it. Because one of the failings in Thamesmead was, uh, you know, and some of the designs were just so innovative and fantastic, but actually no one really had the money to look after it. And I genuinely believe if a huge amount of money had been put aside to look after the place as soon as it was built, we probably wouldn't be there doing the work we're doing today because I think it would have sustained itself a lot better. So stewardship, in my view, is actually thinking from the beginning how you're going to look after it long term. Um, and the final part of a sustainable model is having someone who backs that uh, long term as well. But I'm just thinking, say if I compare that to some other places in London, because you're telling me you know, there's, there's this long term land ownership Peabody there. So you say I have to look at something like Nine Elms, which has changed rather than in 30 years, it appears to have sort of changed in 10 years quite radically, but also to have had lots of different competing uh, developers all on small sites right next to each other. Uh, when one is there, it's hard to sort of feel like there is a coherent long-term story. I mean, how do, you, how do you bring that kind of approach to a place like that where everybody's competing against each other? If you're doing anything on large scale, it's about having a really, really strong strategic master plan that says this is what's going to happen. Now, the reason for doing that is not because it's some big grand plan that everyone wants to show off about. It's actually giving structure to work to. So if you go back to, say, the Newtown models and look at how Milton Keynes has been developed, as an example, the plan that was set out in the late 60s is still the plan that holds today. So if you'd been an investor in the city centre, say, in 1975 or something, actually what is still being rolled out in Milton Keynes is exactly that plan. So it gives you, goes back to the point I made earlier, you could come into something that's long-term, but you've got some certainty. Um, and so long-term plans are really important. Where, and I don't know the details of Nine Elms, but I've, I feel that if you're the driver of someone who wants to develop and leave, because your, your business is about building and going, you're probably not really interested in the long-term. If you're also interested in building a bit of something, and that's where all your money is and that's all your return is, how bothered are you about investing in something around the corner? The answer probably is no. Um, and that's not a criticism, it's a fact of how that model works. So how do you harness everyone to, to come together? So you usually need a strategic plan. In certain areas like Nine Elms, you probably need quite a robust local authority who are resourced, who are capable and... Uh, uh, up to speed enough to be able to basically control the end result for the long term. Um, so I personally am a big, big fan of seeing uh, very well-resourced, um, very well-trained planning uh, teams who can 
take that long-term vision and are allowed to. The issue for local authorities, they're in political cycles, so it can be quite hard for them. But I think we should be getting behind them to really help with um, holding the reins of long-term development, really. Prime Minister Boris Johnson looks set to pump a billion pounds into insulating hundreds of thousands of homes across the country to alleviate the financial burden on the poorest households amid the cost of living crisis. This story broke in the Times and was later picked up by the Daily Mail before being widely shared on social media amid claims the government was momentarily considering naming the new initiative Insulate Britain just like the censured protest group. Uh, Following months of calls from lobbyists representing the energy sector, the environment and campaign groups, uh, the first glimmerings of the government's knack started to surface. According to reports, Johnson has advised ministers to divert more than £1 billion from existing schemes, including the boiler upgrade scheme and public sector decarbonation scheme, towards this latest plan, which will offer grant funding for home insulation in the second half of this year. Now dubbed the Great Britain Insulation Scheme, uh, the Times reported that one government official initially advised that the scheme should be called Insulate Britain, a suggestion that was quickly rejected when someone pointed out that it was the same name as the environmental protest group which shut down parts of the M25. Reacting to the news, the Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy Committee Chair Darren Jones said, quote, It's good the government has finally realised we need to insulate our homes, but taking the money from the heat pump voucher and public sector decarbonation schemes is short-sighted. Just do it properly, he said. So, John, environmental campaigners have been arguing for years uh, that insulation of our existing homes is one of the biggest and most efficient ways we can improve housing stock, reduce our carbon footprint and reduce soaring energy bills. Um, So why does Britain have such poorly insulated homes even now um, and when people have been talking about this for years? And will this latest government initiative do enough to turn around what is frankly has been years of short termist approaches to this environmental stewardship of old and new homes? A small topic to debate. Um, I, I, I've got to say, your last bit of the question there is is, is fascinating in itself. You know, short-termism, oh, £1 billion, pounds, can you spend it before uh, December, says the Prime Minister. Um, I think that's quite a challenge, uh, just from a practical point of view. You know, we can herald, isn't it great, the attention's there. Um, but, you know, why, why are we in this uh, position? Um, I think there's a billion reasons why. But, you know, we are absolutely wedded to old buildings in this country. People love... Uh, still some quite old-style homes. So I don't think, you know, the the, the decision of where people live, if they've got choice, um, is actually driven by eco-purposes, or hasn't been. I think that is changing, but it hasn't been. So why are a lot of things not insulated? Because people haven't really bothered, actually. Um, Coupled with that, there have been moments of, obviously, uh, through government initiatives, some help with people to you know, improve the insulation of their homes. I can remember it back in the 70s when it was quite a big thing to get your house insulated better, and I think there were grant schemes at the time, um, and that all sort of dwindled. And I don't think energy costs have been that high that people are really worried about it. But now that we've got the actual cost of heating is such that suddenly people are going, how can I bring this cost down? So the timing of this is good. Not for, I'm sure it's great for political reasons as well, but in terms of just saying, look, actually people are willing to go to the effort now because they can see a financial benefit. Tonkin Lu has received planning permission to upgrade and transform the Grade 2 listed Grosvenor Square in central London. This is a story reported by the AJ, whose coverage of plans to renew this little visited green space stretches back several years. Uh, Westminster City Council's planning committee has given the go-ahead for a raft of improvements to this formal but often overlooked garden square in Mayfair, uh, including new public toilets, an education building, wetlands, waterfall canopies and plinths for displaying 
Building Public Art. The designs for the 1.79 hectare site, which is the largest garden in Mayfair, have been described as a radical makeover that will feature an oval-shaped lawn reminiscent of an original 1720s park which once occupied the site. Um, that will be framed by a new footpath and, and surrounding shaded garden with biodiverse planting. The square's owner, the development company Grosvenor, which is owned by the Duke of Westminster, picked Tonkin Lu for the job from a six-strong shortlist of designers that also included Deliscafidio Renfro of New York, Sana of Tokyo, London's Muff Architecture Art, Eric Parry Architects and Dan Pearson Studios. James Rayner, Chief Executive of Grover Property UK, which intends to deliver and operate the scheme as carbon neutral, said, quote, the pandemic underscored the lack of high quality green space in central London that makes room for both people and nature. This incredible project will deliver much of what is needed so badly, creating an exceptional environment for everyone who lives in or comes to the area. So, John, stewardship is not just about preserving and maintaining buildings. Open spaces provide an invaluable public asset in a city like London, too. Um, what is Grosvenor Square like now? And what do you make of these plans to transform this central London green space? And what do they tell us about the value good quality landscape design can bring to the stewardship of the built environment? I think it's a really good thing. Um, and I think the fact that Grosvenor have got the foresight to not only recognise the need for change, but hugely recognised to get some real skill in. From I mean, that list of that you just went through is quite impressive. Uh, so I think I think it's interesting that um, the move away from sort of formality to allow a much more creative planting structure, allow for greater biodiversity. Think about what it means from a sort of an eco position is is really really sensible. I also think it will just be so much more interesting. I'm be interested to see how they manage it. I'm hoping they'll keep it open and it's not too gated. So, um, John, as People's Executive Director for Thames Mead, you're closely involved in one of the biggest regeneration projects in London. Um, so as well as being home to some iconic architecture and essential social housing, Thames Mead's also got quite a lot of open space. Um, how are you managing these open spaces and involving a broad spectrum of the local community to deliver that long-term stewardship? Yeah, quite a lot. It's interesting just to give some, some numbers around that. It's actually 240 hectares. So it's, uh, it's a third of the whole of Thamesmead is, is open, uh, which uh, basically it's parks and green spaces. We've got seven kilometres of canals, uh, five lakes, uh, 53,000 trees, you know, a few little stats to just give some context. But what that actually means is not only is it a big job to look after all that, it means if you live there, you've got this amazing access to an incredible amount of open space. So what we're doing about that is we've we've created uh, a 30-year plan called Living in the Landscape, uh, and that's about a combination of big ambitious projects, so the big projects where people will be excited, coupled with some really small interventions where we're just bringing in some... We've got a thing that's sort of uh, outdoor education, so we have a small outdoor classroom. We'll have sort of uh, growing spaces where people can see edible gardens and actually get involved. So we've been really down at local level to say, look, what do you want with this space? So we've had co-design processes. All the things that people talk about, we've now actually translated into some reality in Thamesmead. And it's really nice to see where people... Um, actually looked at open space, it wasn't very interesting, didn't really think they were part of that, and now it's completely turned on its head just by inviting people to design the spaces themselves. So I mentioned Muff Architecture before. They've worked on a community design collaboration where we've had residents that we've actually not only helped train in design, but we've actually paid them to be part of a community group. So it's actually real economic value as well. It's not about our design, it's about everybody's design. And I think that's really important to creating great spaces. Um, so quite a shocking report, uh, which the BBC published, saying that um, nearly 200,000 homes 
could be abandoned by 2050 due to rising sea levels, which will place a third of England's coastline under pressure. Um, so obviously, we're talking about landscape. How could an effective management of open spaces and some really ambitious landscape design potentially help with climate resilience of both existing and new residential communities? Yeah, in terms of my point I was making about strategic master planning and, and, and sort of flying the flag for new towns and specifically for Thamesmead, that, that actually sits below um, sea level. Um, huge flooding issues originally, uh, marshland, and then it was going to be built on. So how that was dealt with then was to build lakes and interconnecting canal systems that basically offer a complete balancing process. So Thamesby has never flooded since it was built. But it's about thinking around how you manage this. So uh, you could have done it in a certain way, but actually the lakes were then seen as amenity offers too. They actually serve a purpose not for the enjoyment of sailing. That's a secondary purpose. The purpose is to stop the place from flooding. Milton Keynes is exactly the same. Uh, balancing lakes all connected. Uh, that place has never flooded uh, since it was built, even with all those storms that were happening in the middle of the country a few years ago. Uh, that The new town bit actually was fine. Go a bit further out into the what I would call the more casual developments or the sporadic stuff that was done without any real long-term strategic planning, and there was a lot of places underwater. Um, so, you know, putting it now, there's clearly, as things get worse, um, how robust those systems are going to be long, long term. But the great thing is, is you've got a network that you could obviously improve the capacity if you had to. As the cost of living crisis bites, the repercussions are being felt by businesses and individuals up and down the country. Among those most feeling the pinch of soaring energy bills are swimming pools, uh, which surveys now indicate have left many at risk of closing down. A number of local newspapers across the UK have picked up on the crisis is facing public pools and this week the metro ran a story detailing the scale of the problem which was widely shared across social media particularly by certain architectural critics who love swimming a survey conducted by uk active indicates that 85 percent of public pool operators may be forced to reduce their services over the next six months to cope with escalating costs in a bid to stay afloat amid spiralling running costs, some gyms and leisure centres have even reportedly lowered pool temperatures and turned lights down. Experts worry that this latest hurdle could deliver a final blow to this type of public amenity that, despite playing a vital role in the long-term stewardship of many communities, was already on the brink of collapse. Half of the UK's 4,000 pools were already deemed at risk of closure even before the energy costs started to rise steeply late last year. Meanwhile, another highly valued public space has been in the headlines this week. Uh, the AJ reported on a listing bonanza for historic pubs in the UK, uh, which saw 11 buildings either newly listed or having their listings upgraded. Uh, Paul Ainsworth, chairman of Camera's pub heritage group, said, quote, Time is tough for all pubs at the moment, including those with important historic interiors. The more protection they can receive, the better. Um, so, John, thinking about social amenities, uh, what is the significance of this latest news that so many pools are facing partial or full closure? It's a massive worry, isn't it? Um, I, can't, I can't think of um, sort of an activity that spans every generation uh, and even multi-generational activity, you know, where grandparents will take kids or, or whatever. So the idea of a local swimming pool closing, uh, I, 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 it's akin to library shutting uh, or a park being closed or whatever. It's just part of the social or civic infrastructure that one sort of expects is there. We've also heard about this listing bonanza. Uh, it's seen a lot of historic pubs saved from redevelopment. Um, however, obviously, we know that real long-term social stewardship is not just about protecting the buildings themselves. It's also about supporting the communities that use and service those places over generations. Um, 
With this in mind, perhaps you could tell us a bit about some of the work Peabody's been doing in Thames Me with local communities to bring some key social amenities back into use, such as things like the Moorings Sociable Club. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's a really interesting thing about people's attachment to places. You know, what we've done in Thamesmead is, where do you start? You start with people who live there. You know, it's all very well me talking about, I don't live in the moorings. Um, so we spent, uh, uh, I think, actually a four-year process to talk with local communities. And the thing that really came out on top was the last 15 years we've been living here, this social club's been shut and the only reason it was shut was because the roof was leaking, the, the, um, the windows weren't really functioning, and our predecessors just boarded it up and just left it there. And we were saying, so what are you saying? Well, we just want this open. Really simple. Now, £3 million later, uh, of which a £1 million came from the GLA to support in that, that is, has now reopened. It reopened in April. Uh, the day we opened it, without any real publicity or anything, we had 500 people through the door. And I would say about 300 of those had had some active involvement in getting us to do that job. But what, what it's been, when you go back to sort of the fabric of the building, is it is the most fantastic example of modern conservation, where we had this building which was leaking. One of the easiest things for us to do was to probably just cut it, or it sits up on the first floor, sort of basically cut it down a bit and rebuild, because that would have been the cheapest solution. But actually, um, the team have done this most sensitive upgrade uh, uh, with, with such lovely respect to the fabric of the building, kept as much as we could, but introduced some new dimensions as well, reflected the era it was built in, but it's all functioning brilliantly. And I think those sort of things then will have a long, long-term benefit because there's that sense of ownership. So if that relates to someone's pub, or the local swimming pool or whatever, um, that is the opportunity to get behind it and then that's the right solution to, to, um, to keep it. You know, my assumption is everyone loves going swimming. Um, what if the swimming pool is a massive drain on resources and everyone would much rather see, a, a, I don't know, something else? Well, the local community should say that, but my hunch is most people would want to keep the swimming pool. Do they want to keep a Victorian beautiful corner pub? Um, possibly yes, or would they rather see it as a different building? They love the building, don't particularly want to buy a drink um what do you do about that but you need to listen and hear that so i do think uh we mustn't jump to conclusion that what's been successful before isn't necessarily popular and successful for the future because you do have to ask yourself why is it closing but if it's been closed because public money's coming away but people love it and want it then we need to do something about that Okay, we're on to the culture section. So uh, big stuff coming up in the week of uh, culture just opened yesterday is the Royal Academy Summer Show. Um, So if anyone's unfamiliar with it, uh, the Royal Academy, all these rooms are full of amazing paintings and drawings and sculptures which come from all over the place, assembled in in sometimes quite an intense way. Uh, But there is also an architecture room uh, within it, which of which uh, lots of amazing architects and especially London architects all flood in and put their models and drawings and so on. Uh, this year, that room is jointly curated by Nar McLaughlin and artist Rana Begum. Um, the display mixes art with architecture, seeking uh, to show how the climate crisis is changing material practices. Um, have you had a chance to go down? I haven't seen this. Really annoying. I should declare an interest. I'm actually officially a friend of the Royal Academy, so well, I'm, I won't be criticising what they do. But um, 
No, I haven't. It's really you know, it's so popular now. I used to get invited to go for the sort of Friends opening um, and couldn't even get into that this year. So I will be going, but I haven't actually seen this year. I just see last year's. So we're hearing it's a blockbuster. Um, yeah, one to check out, definitely. Um, and the other thing, a big thing coming up in the calendar, uh, is a special London Live uh, recording, which is going to be happening here at Bureau and Design District in the amazing uh, forum event space uh, with Smith Mordack and Richard Ellis, uh, who's head of sustainability at Peabody, one of your colleagues. Um, so this is going to be uh, held as part of the Open City Stewardship Awards public programme. Uh, it's going to be chaired by Open City Director Finn Harper, and it's going to happen on uh, Wednesday, the 6th of July. Tickets are all available on our website. Uh, John, are you coming? What do you think of this one? Uh, well, again, I'm sure I'd, I'd love to cover it. Yeah, it sounds very interesting, but it's great Richard's taking part because uh, I think some of the bits you've been touching on today, I mean, he really is an expert and uh, I'm sure there'll be an opportunity to really talk about the sort of whole sustainability agenda here. Yeah. So potentially a really essential London Live for aspiring city makers, urbanist fans. Yes. John, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on this week's London. Um, where can our listeners stay up to speed on the things you're doing? Should they go to a website or any socials, Instagram, TikTok? Uh, well, probably the easiest one. Thamesmead Now is our website that has a whole sort of breadth of not just sort of the projects we're doing, but also talks about a lot more of the community activity as well. And I would say for any sort of urban professionalist, if you can come and see some of the more community-based events, because everyone always it's really easy to get people to look around new buildings. So, you know, that's never a problem. I think seeing some of the more subtle work that we're doing and some of our cultural work to really understand that and see the benefits doing to local people and then uh, understand what that means if you're starting to design places from scratch as well. So that's Thames We Now. Thames We Now dot something or other. Fantastic. Thank you for being on this week's show. No problem. Real, real pleasure. been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.